You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Hi there, welcome to the show. Wednesday the 22nd of June, another beautiful morning here in TW11. And following on from yesterday's podcast, confirmation first that Tuesday has been supplemented, and she was on Tuesday, for Saturday's Irish Derby, bidding to become the first filly to win the race since 1994. She will take on Westover. You heard on yesterday's pod Barry Mann explaining from Judmont why Colin Keane is taking over the ride from Rob Hornby. And that really seemed to percolate through the rest of the day. And we'll be discussing the reaction to that in a few moments. Time also looking ahead to the Northumberland Plate, the big race in the UK this weekend. And I'll be talking to Roly Owers, the chief executive of World Horse Welfare, plus multiple point-to-point champion trainer Alan Hill. All that's to come. But first of all, I thought it a good idea to wrap up Royal Ascot with William Haggis and find out plans for his stars because there'd been some speculation as to whether he would hold to his word as regards Baid's targets for the rest of the season. And I began by asking him whether it was still going to be the Sussex Stakes at Goodwood and the Judmont International at York for his stable star. I think that's, that's the obvious route, isn't it? So I mean, you, you're quite happy to bash on to Goodwood if he's OK? I think so. We haven't discussed it uh, fully, um, but uh, it, it seems the obvious thing. I mean, he's got a race because he's four years old and, you know, he's there are not many races left for him, so uh, he needs to get on with it. Just going back to last week, I guess, William, when the meeting opens up with officially the world's best horse and he, he dances to victory fairly in fairly emphatic fashion, it, it's sort of quite hard to build on that, really, isn't it? Well, it is for us, yeah. But um, uh, you know, he 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 won well as he was entitled to do, and I was sort of not uh, uh, overwhelmed by his performance, although he never came off the bridle really. Um, but uh, the handicapper put him up three pounds, so he must have seen something. Um, so it was good, yeah. I think the handicappers read of it probably is that is that real world has moved forward a fair step from from Newbury. You've still beaten him easily, and you're miles clear of the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and uh, and the time was very good. Yeah, I think that's right. I think all those factors are correct, and I think that's what he saw in it. Yeah. Did you were you expecting more fireworks? No, not really. But you know, he's just professional, isn't he? He, you know, it's like sort of automatic for him at the moment, and. I don't think he had to extend at all quite what he'd find if he gave him four backhanders, I don't know, but it, it, it's enough at the moment, isn't it? And, uh, you know, he, he he did well. We were very pleased with him. We, we always used to say about his father, see the stars, he only did what he needed to do. Is there an element of that? Well, I think possibly that was my reaction after. He's just doing it at the moment. And his father was never flash but he kept winning over every distance. And, um, you know, this horse is, is doing well and, and going up in trip is going to be really interesting for us anyway. William, we're all wondering what might turn up against him in the Sussex Stakes, Caribus being being the obvious one, but he was rather fortunate to win 
the the St James's Palace stakes, and rather unfortunate was was your horse Maljum. Is there a possibility you might slide Maljum in against Baeden and and take on your own stable star? I don't think so. Um, obviously, um, Sheikh Ahesa's uncle is Sheikh Ahmed. I don't think they have any <laughs> desire to send Maljum for the Sussex. He's not in it for a start off. I think he's going. You know, he he will go for the Jack Lamara. I think. Okay, and I mean that was a that was a hell of a performance. We know that he was unlucky. We know that Kieran Fallon was mortified and held his hands up. And you said what you had to say afterwards. Um, are you pretty clear in your own mind that with a clear run, he definitely would have won? Oh, I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, um, I think it was really they went no gallop in that race. They let uh, Lucille went as steady as he possibly could, and um, it was really messy. Um, and uh, Ryan's horse fell back on Maljum at the wrong time. It was just one of those things that can happen. The horse made uh, rapid gains in the last furlong, and I think most observers thought that he would have won, and and I agree with them. I think he would have done. Yeah, I mean, were you going into the race, were you, were you expecting him, therefore, to have been, in terms of flashing his talent, that far superior to my Prospero, who I know who finished one place in front of him. You see what I'm getting at there? Yeah, no, I think my Prospero is a good horse. I think he just needs further, and it was a risk running him in the St. James's Palace because we knew he needed further. But it's the last sort of group one for three-year-old Colts, and we felt that, you know, it was worth a shot. And uh, he ne- it nearly paid off for him. Um, but he won't run at a mile again, uh, my Prospero, but Maldrum will stay at a mile for the time being, yeah. And where will my Prospero head? I don't know, um, really. I suppose the options are the Skybet race at York or the pre-Eugene Adam uh, in France. I don't know. I, d- I just need to think about that one. He's a great big horse. Going to be better next year. Uh, if we can if we can nick a Group 1 somewhere, you know, we've got uh, chances of him being a proper horse next year. Um, do you think you'll win a group race with Candleford? This was a proper Haggis special in the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> I don't know. He's looked a sod all year, and he's just in the last three weeks really come forward, and he looked great at Ascot in the paddock, I thought. And, and you know, all of us who are with him every day have been battling with him, and I, I, I think he's he's really done well. I mean, he looked a very good horse. I was watching it again, funnily enough, this morning, and he looked a really good horse, couldn't fault his performance. Um, so he'll... Um, he's gone up thirteen to one oh four, so he'll ne- he'll sneak into the mm. e-ball. I just feel he's a bit better going right-handed for some odd reason. Um, he lugs a bit to, uh, that way, um, but the e-ball would look very tempting now. Um, don't know really. Don't know good, what to do with it. Good job you saved him for Royal Ascot, isn't it? I mean, imagine doing thirteen pounds in at Redcar or something. Yes, we can. We've we've done that a bit this year, so uh, it's very frustrating when they go up a lot for uh, for winning a minor race. But there you go. That's the way it is. All right. I don't want to take up too much of your time because you are actually taking a bit of a well earned rest, and you very kindly answered my call this morning. Um, but of of the others who didn't come home in front, who were you most pleased with? Who did you walk away thinking, "Aha, I've got something to build on"? It'll be Goodwood or York or something else. Yeah, we, we had some, some good performances. Um, in the handicaps, I thought Montesib ran very good race, ran a very good race for his, he was clearly inexperienced. 
I thought Persist ran well in the Sandringham. She finished second on her side. It was sort of dominated by the high numbers that race. And uh, Charlie Fellows, Philly, and us uh, ran really well on the on the supposed wrong side. Although I have no idea what was the right or wrong side during this week. Um, I thought Sacred ran a belter, um, just too short for her. Uh, she's a seven furlong filly. We've got another sort of one master situation. The only problem with one master is she loved, or wasn't a problem. She loved cutting the ground, and Sacred likes fast. Mm-hmm. But she ran a really, really top race. City of York or something like that? Well, yeah, it's only Group 2, really. She won the Hungerford last year, and we're desperately trying to win a Group 1. And, and I think the Morris de Guise will be something that we settle for. But, you know, all those races, the, the, the Lennox, the Hungerford, and the City of York come within the space of a month less, probably. And uh, with a Morris de Guise slotted in the middle, and she's one that goes fresh. So uh, it, it's it's the vagaries of the program, I'm afraid, Nick. That you can't, uh, you know, there isn't one Group One over seven furlongs for four-year-old nuts, and that's that's and that's the Prix de la Forêt, where the ground is usually soft. So a fast ground filly like Sacred has to either stretch out to a mile. Uh, or or come back to six. So it's, it's, it's quite difficult. Anyway, there you go. That's the way it is. Thanks for your time, William. <laughs> okay, Nick. Well, listening in there to trainer William Haggis was Cornelius Lysett. Welcome back to the podcast. And Cornelius, uh, going through all sorts of different bits and pieces there. I mean, the key point to make was that Baid would run in the Sussex and the Judmont. There seemed to have been some speculation after that, but he's not, he's not wavered from that line throughout, but understandably saying that neither Sheikh Hissa nor her uncle Sheikh Ahmed would want to take one another on with Baid and Maljoub. When you get a really good uh, horse that develops a, a long unbeaten sequence, just like uh, Baid is, is... Obviously, it's about the horse, but it's about the people around him as well and their characters, and they are very much part of the story. And William, first of all, very much part of the story. And I love quotes like, you know, he obviously does have sleepless nights over this horse. I love that quote at Royal Ascot last week. I do 6,000 steps before 6 a.m. on a day like this, just sort of wandering around the place, just thinking and uh, and worrying about what's ahead. So William, very much part of this story. But but so um, is Sheikha Hissa and her family. And the, uh, constantly through this, the memories of Sheikh Hamdan are there. I thought it was really striking how uh, Sheikha Hissa came forward to, uh, to speak about this horse at Royal Ascot last week. We were told by officials at Ascot that protocols uh, said that uh, indicated that she she wouldn't want to talk to the media uh, about the horse, N- not not really the sort of thing she'd want to do. But she absolutely did, and she radiated uh, enjoyment. She radiated uh, the thrill of owning a horse like this, uh, and um, some some really nice quotes from her. And she was very much about the place during the week with the Shadwell horses. And and for those who just feared about the future of Shadwell, especially a, a, a slimmed-down Shadwell subsequent to the death of Sheikh Hamdan. Mm. Well, that was lovely to see Sheikh Ahissa uh, taking a, a real interest in everything, uh, being very evident about the place and probably giving a sign of things to come. Well, from a slimmed-down Shadwell operation to a slimmed-down but still effective Judmont operation and the big story yesterday that we followed up 
uh, on this podcast talking to uh, Barry Mann, Judmont's racing manager, that Rob Hornby wouldn't ride west over in the Irish Derby and that ride would be taken by Colin Keane. Uh, that started to percolate through the rest of the day, culminating in an interview on Racing TV with Rob Hornby last night. Uh, Cornelius, how did he take the news? Well, he has enhanced his reputation considerably. Uh, he talked about being disappointed, but also that the decision was understandable. Um, I, I, I think genuinely it does enhance his reputation. There isn't anyone who thinks that he's been taken off this horse because he's no good. He's been taken off this horse because available is uh, a champion jockey, two-time uh, winner of a classic round, uh, the Curra in uh, Colin Keane. And that decision uh, has been made. And Colin Keane, as you were pointing out on the podcast yesterday, has tremendous experience, not just of winning round races around the Curra, winning big races around the Curra when, um, you know, he's got a lot of opposition and um, that they're all trying to, to, to beat him. My, my mind was thrown back to when Tom Marquand was um, uh, jocked off uh, or replaced, I should say, probably a better expression, replaced by Frankie Dettori on English King, uh, which had won the Lingfield Derby trial a couple of years going on towards Epsom. And um, Tom Marquand um, had, uh, did his reaction was similar to that of Rob Hornby. Uh, was uh, was sensible, uh, was uh, not throwing toys out of brown, wasn't stamping feet. And ultimately, look where Tom Marquand has, uh, to, to where he's moved forward since that time. These things do happen. We all know they've happened in racing uh, since the beginning of time. Uh, Rob Hornby knows they've happened in racing since the beginning of time. Uh, and uh, the fact is that uh, by reacting in such a sensible way, talking about uh, cheering the horse on from uh, Windsor, I think he plans to be on Saturday, he's enhanced his reputation. And uh, people will think, well, here's a guy, sensible guy, uh, and there are going to be good horses to be ridden in the future. And there'll be a similar situation in which he's in a, in a positive position. Penalty kick this is not, however, for Westover, because as we anticipated yesterday, Tuesday mm. has been supplemented, was supplemented on a Tuesday for Saturday's Irish mm -hmm. Derby by Aidan O'Brien, looks to become the first filly to beat the Colts in this race since 1994. It's an awful long time, as I said to Jane Mang and Cornelius yesterday, when you consider that in Europe, you know, we quite happily run fillies against Colts on a, on a fairly routine basis. She gets three pounds from the Derby third, um, does that give her the edge, do you think? The market's got them very close. Uh, I, I think it's quite a big, big day for, um, for, for Tuesday and particularly for, for Coolmore. If you look at the, the classic races so far this year, Coolmore, the Coolmore team has won one. And uh, there'll be plenty of people saying uh, it was fortunate to win that, the Oaks at Epsom with Tuesday. And if you look at Royal Ascot, success with changing of the guard but i think if i'm right one two three four five six seven eight nine runners in nine three-year-old runners at royal ascot and uh, only one winner so uh, although tuesday adds as jane rightly said a tremendous bit of extra spice to this race and spending the money on the, the late entry fee is uh, very welcome in some years you'd say wow Aidan's brought this um, brought this three-year-old, uh, three-year-old filly uh, to the Irish Derby. We've really got to, uh, everyone needs to be on their metal, which of course they do need to be, but it's not perhaps, it doesn't have, to my mind, quite the impact of some other years because the three-year-olds haven't been yeah. thriving in the way that sometimes, uh, sometimes they do, but they're giving themselves uh, a, a really interesting another, uh, another throw of the dice. 
Big race here in the UK this weekend is one of the, the key handicaps of the year, one of the marquee handicaps, the two-mile Northumberland plate run on the synthetic surface at Newcastle. It, look, it looks as though Trushan's going to hump 10 stone 8 or something yeah. insane in that race because they need to get a spin into him before the Goodwood Cup. But you tell me you found the winner. I think and it'll be a good story as well. The one I really like is Rezinski, trained by Hugo Palmer. Uh, he took that over Tom Daskam, having moved out of the Manor House stables owned by Michael Owen in, in Cheshire. And Rajinsky was there. He's taken over Rajinsky, finished third in the Chester Cup. Well, that form has uh, looks absolutely rock solid, up just a pound for doing that. And ridden, and this will add to any story, ridden, and it, it, this is the time of the year that you start really having a look at uh, the apprentices, the, the, um, the men and women, the young men and women who are very much on the up as our sort of apprentices making an impression. Uh, and uh, there are three making a very strong impression. Well, there are a number making a strong impression, three in particular for me. One of those is a guy called Ryan Sexton, based on the Northern Circuit. Another is Benoit de la Sayette, based with John Gosden. But the other is most certainly Harry Davis, who I see has been booked to ride Rajinsky. I really fancy that to run, yeah. run well. well. We'll have to see the draw and stuff like that. But um, even so, Rajinsky would be very interesting. Yesterday here in, in London and online, in part because of the, the rail strikes that are going on at the moment, World Horse Welfare conducted not just a, a racing industry-wide, but a horse sport industry-wide conference examining uh, all horse sports need to look at, examine the social licence required to carry out their, their day-to-day business. Roly Owens is the chief executive of, of World Horse Welfare. Roly, what, what do we mean by that? What do we understand by social licence? Hi, Nick. Well, social licence is basically, it's an unwritten licence between horse sport, generally, um, and indeed all horse activity, and the general public. And, you know, there can be, and we've seen, you know, concerns, for example, around the Grand National, the way the the public and and society views its relationship with the environment and animals is changing. Our understanding of horse welfare is changing. And we know that if uh, horse sport loses the trust of the general public, then it loses its general its social license, and that can have really significant consequences for the future of horse sport. So we just wanted to try. We did a bit of public re- um, opinion research through YouGov, and yesterday we were presenting results of that that public opinion research. What would you say was the key points that you took away from it when you read the results? What was the what was the first thing that struck you? The first thing that struck me is that there is really an issue here. And, you know, obviously this is one bit of research, but it's supported by, you know, what we see in the headlines, what we see on social media, and also the conversations I've had in the UK and around the world. That there is, you know, one in five people do not support the continued involvement of horses in sport under any circumstances. So, you know, that's... But if you look at the Pareto principle, that you don't need to worry about the 20%. It's the 80%. And a significant number of 80% is actually two in five only support continued involvement of horses in sport if their welfare is improved so there is an issue here um but it's an issue that horse sport and racing in many ways has taken a a very good lead um needs to take very seriously because it's not just um a perception problem there are equine welfare issues at its heart but it's a it's a challenge that the sport can rise to but it needs to be seen to be rising to it there are all sorts of things we can do to improve the perception of all horse sports. But in your opinion and from your experience as someone who knows these sports quite intimately, 
where are the welfare problems? Where are the issues that actually need to be tackled head on? I think one of the big challenges is our increasing understanding of equine welfare. And, you know, when people think about welfare, they so often think about good stabling, good veterinary care, good feed. That is really important. But it's equally important to think about their mental well-being and where horses have come from an evolutionary point of view. So I think how we manage and train and care for our horses is equally as important as the the very rightful um, and and correct sort of focus on in racing's perception case sorry around what goes on on a race course and reducing that risk because we know in horse sport there'll always be risk our responsibility is to reduce that risk as far as we possibly can so we're doing a number of things one of the things we're doing a piece of research with the royal veterinary college which is developing an ethical framework tool and that basically means that if if horse sport has a question to answer around equine welfare it can then go through a structured format to come out with a justifiable answer because one of the challenges we face is there are quite a few people in horse sport who think you give an inch you take the, and they'll take a mile or you know the fact that you know we know what we're doing the general public don't but you do need need to make justifiable decisions that's always not going with what the latest social media pitch is all about but it's about being able to make decisions sometimes changing the way we do things other times it's saying no what we're doing is right and it's right because of these reasons and that's why we think this framework will be really really helpful so it's okay to have confidence in your sport but you've got to have a you know robust justification for your confidence that's what you're saying i think Absolutely, because social license is underpinned by trust by the general public that we are doing right by our horses. So we can't bury our head in the sands and say, we know what we're doing, but other people don't. We've got to be able to justify what we're doing and how we're doing it. And a key point, another key point that came out yesterday is racing is doing quite a lot here, as are other horse sports, and polo was also represented. But actually, as far as the general public, they're all the same, whether it's racing, polo, dressage. So actually, the initiatives like uh, the, the, the um, the week in September when so many racehorse stables open their doors that should be across the sector so the public can get an understanding of all horse sport because it all does come under the same banner That's Rolio is there, Chief Executive of World Horse Welfare and yesterday this uh, seminar uh, highlighting the research that's been undertaken into the perception of not just horse racing but all equestrian sports and the social licence required to own, look after and compete to Cornelius Public impression is hugely uh, important on these occasions and stats were produced at the the conference about people's impression of racing, of the WIT regulations uh, and where they see the sport going in the future and all those have to be uh, taken into account. Just one particular thought I have on the whole issue, I think we in the media have to be quite careful uh, particularly the broadcast media, and I've been guilty of this probably in the past myself, not to get ourselves in a tangle uh, over this issue. Of course, we must report incidents when they take place. But I think we need to be careful not to create the welfare issue when one doesn't exist. Let me give you an example. We must assume that if a horse and jockey park company, or if a horse falls in a race, we must assume it's okay before uh, then if, if there is some sad news to impart, imparting some sad news. I don't think we ought to assume automatically 
that that what has happened is a, a very serious incident. I was watching racing and uh, a horse fell at a hurdle in the straight. It was a Chepstow. And then there was a shot shown of the horse running loose afterwards. And I heard somebody say, that's the best news of the day. The horse is okay. Well, it's not the best news of the day. We must should assume that, that, that it is okay, but then report if uh, things aren't so good. Or you know, racing is so busy these days, you move from one track to another very quickly and uh, a horse has suffered a fall. And you hear um, somebody say uh, words to the effect of, oh, that was a horrible fall. Hope he's OK. Well, we should assume he is OK. And there is quite likely, because the cameras have moved very quickly, that, that he will be all right. We in the media have an important responsibility in this very big issue. Uh, which is hugely important for horse racing and uh, especially important, as has been discussed in this particular conference, when people are getting impressions all the time about racing. Well, racing's position, Cornelius, in relation to the zeitgeist is always uppermost in the minds of those at Great British Racing, the sports marketing arm, which yesterday launched its Everyone's Turf campaign to showcase how there's something for everyone this summer at British racecourses and to help to maintain and grow attendances, which have been rather struggling of late, particularly outside the festival meetings. And they're really focusing on this vital July to September period. It's being run on behalf of the Racecourse Association, funded by the Levy Board with contributions from GBR. And the campaign's being fronted by the broadcaster and former footballer Jermaine Genus, who's in all the promotional content. And he's a part of it alongside Chris Hughes and Khadija Mella, both of whom have been quite familiar to racing TV viewers. Rod Street is the chief executive of Great British Racing and joins me now. Uh, Rod, what's the thinking behind this particular initiative? Pre the pandemic, we'd seen a, a gentle but noticeable decline in racecourse attendance, particularly in quarter three, that period July through to September, which is one of the most influential periods for, for horse racing. Circa 35% of, of race going takes place in that period. The other ones were holding up okay-ish, but being that that quarter is such an influential one, the viewers, we needed to, to bolster that. It, it, racing is competing during the summer with so many other sporting events and leisure attractions and festivals that the consumer has more choice than ever. And, and what we were seeing was racing having to compete harder to not only stand still, but hopefully grow. So that was the position pre-pandemic and the horse race betting levy board approved a very similar campaign then uh, to kick off in in 220 but obviously that was put on ice because of covid um but we've returned for 222 with as, as you as you've alluded to yeah a, a greater urgency when it comes to race course admissions Rod, is there any information you're working on now that perhaps you wouldn't have been working on if this had taken place when it was supposed to two years ago? I think the most notable one is that during the, the two years of COVID, the, the regular consumer research we undertook about awareness of racing and engagement with racing showed us that the 25 to 34-year-old market was growing in interest in going racing and experiencing a day at the races. And that, that number increased i think by 11 percent during um the two years of covid of people who would consider going horse racing so there is a a a big focus on that market i think when you're spending 
the levy board's money and of course some of GBR's money, it's important that there is clarity about where you're focusing and targeting. I think um, scattergun is about the worst approach you could ever take with, with any marketing campaign. But such is the tone of voice of the campaign, such is um, the energy that will go into it from all of the race courses participating and supporting it that we, we think there's something for everyone. So beyond that target market of getting young people to come and experience what we know is a, a fantastic day, it will reach other places too, including encouraging lapsed um, and existing fans to come racing. So you're, you've got a, a, a really good trio fronting this. You've got Jermaine Genus, the, the broadcaster and former footballer, Chris Hughes and Khadija Mella, who race fans will be pretty familiar with already. Um, why did you go for Jermaine and, and what's, his, what's his input been? We undertook some testing before we put the, um, the final campaign together with, with consumer groups to find out who scored well. If, if, if we're looking to reach a certain market, it's worth finding out from that market who resonates and Jermaine Genus scored very well. Um, he's a you know a, from a mass market point of view, he's a, a regular host of the One Show on BBC. He's a match of the day pundit. He himself is a a, um, a, a young person, um, certainly in comparison to me. Um, and um, and so that was that was important that you had a had a figurehead that that resonated. Chris Hughes, you know, is incredibly authentic i think he's a a, a well-known racing fan who, who knows his stuff but who also reaches uh, an audience that that um this target market you know is absolutely in the sweet spot for this younger market and khadija mella her profile is growing all the time and again particularly in communities that racing doesn't always reach so we we think that the combination of these these three people is important. Jermaine is the lead on the video. He's going to undertake some radio interviews for us and some produce some some extra content. But that's really kind of the, the you know the, the front of house stuff relating to the campaign. The real sort of engine behind it is going to be the advertising and marketing over the summer, which will be diverse. Um, and tell me a little bit about how that's going to manifest itself. We're, we're, we're um, focusing on a lot of social media marketing because what you can do now with technology is actually go where, you know, they, they call it fish where the fish are, if you like, and, and actually take your content to places where you know your target market uh, are going to be. So there'll be a lot of advertising across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. There'll be regional um, radio advertising campaigns to attract people. There'll be some out-of-home advertising, so there'd be some billboards and some media and, and newspaper placements. So there'd be a, 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 a full suite of, of, of marketing and promotional activity to activate the campaign. And crucially, we've developed assets, which I'm sure you've seen, everyone's turf assets, which are available for all of racing to use, and particularly the, the race courses who can attach that to their social media messaging and their advertising. The sport has a massive following across social media, of course, and through the work we've done, we know that racing's audience is circa 26 million if you kind of combine all of racing social media following. So there is a big opportunity for the race courses to really underpin this campaign by using the assets. And I think the important thing is here that, that, that racing, and, and, and again, you know, specifically the RCA and the tracks, realize there's a challenge at the moment we've come out of this two-year crazy period and this pandemic which seems to have changed so many things and i think you know 
compounded by the current cost of living crisis, the fact that there is a tsunami of choice hitting people this year in the first year that people can go out and have fun again, that race courses have got to compete hard to win back customers and win new ones. Rod Street there from Great British Racing. Now we are off to Hong Kong to catch up with the croc, J.A. McGrath. Hi, Nick. Some big announcements regarding racing officials in Hong Kong since our last segment on this podcast. Bill Nader is going back home to America. He's apparently got a new job lined up there. Details to follow in due course, he says. And Australia's Greg Carpenter, who's led Racing Victoria's handicapping and racing departments since 2005, is off to Hong Kong to fill Nader's shoes, taking on many of Bill's uh, jobs and appointments. Greg won't be going, though, until September, by which time he will have released his weights for the 2022 Melbourne Cup. It'll be uh, the 18th Melbourne Cup that Carpenter has handicapped. A big job framing the weights for an $8 million handicap carries heavy responsibility. Despite all the tough restrictions in Hong Kong connected with COVID and China's crusade to achieve COVID zero, racing has gathered together some very able racing officials to keep the sport flourishing. Not that long ago, one of Australia's most vigilant stewards, Terry Bailey, joined the team. And of course, longtime stalwart Nigel Gray from the UK is still serving the club well as the head of handicapping. But let's leave the racing corridors of power and head to the racetrack. Nine races again at Happy Valley today. Only eight meetings left before the curtain drops on the season next month. And it's a good card too. And we've got a couple of good horses to follow. In race nine, number five, Lucky Swain S. This is one of the rising stars in the ranks. Has won four out of five so far and keeps climbing the ladder higher and higher. I think Lucky Swain S can win for Matthew Poon and Manfred Mann and can beat number one, Keep You Warm, Zach Purton, uh, who, of course, is uh, making inroads into Joe Marrera's lead in the Jockeys' Championship. They, uh, there's only two between them now, Joe on 127, Zach on 125. Uh, earlier on in race eight, uh, try number eight, Dr. Winning. This is trained by John Size, who's uh, also out to try and win his 12th Trainers' Championship. Uh, Dr. Winning's in cracking form at the moment, and Alexi Bedell takes the ride to beat number seven, World Famous. So in race eight, number eight, Dr. Winning, to beat seven, World Famous, and take them in a tote swinger and all multiple bets. That's racing coming up at Happy Valley today. That's all on the Hong Kong Beat this week. I'll have more for you next week. Jim, thank you so much. Now for something completely different, as they used to say, from the bright lights and bustling energy of Hong Kong to a rather more bucolic scene. Point to point racing is under significant threat in the UK. That's the amateur branch of the sport, which relies heavily on donations, uh, on support from local hunts and support from local landowners. One of its most celebrated race courses, Barbary Castle is now going to close. That's where Alan King trains horses. Uh, Alan Hill has been champion point-to-point trainer on numerous occasions, and he is coming to me from about as far away from Hong Kong as you can get. Um, Alan, uh, where are you at the moment? Yeah, good morning, Nick. Yep, I'm sat at the moment on my self-propelled sprayer, spraying small seed rate, uh, ready, desiccating off, ready for harvest, which is coming upon us quite quickly now. And it, it really goes to remind us that that point to pointing is, you know, at the heart of 
of the countryside. It, it, it is very much the roots of, of national hunt racing. Um, how worried are you for its, for its future on, on the basis of what we've heard from Barbary Castle? It's very disappointing to hear the news about Barbary Castle um, not racing this season coming. Um, and it's a lovely course to run horses on. It's a great course to spectate. And this is another a very small nail in the coffin of fixtures because um, with the international meeting that has been the brainchild of Nigel Bunter and David Minton and then the Tedworth Hunt and the Vine and Craven Hunt, we've been very fortunate to see some seriously top-class horses and young horses run over a very good course. So losing that course is has got to be a disappointment and, and, and a negative to our sport. But how have we... How are we looking at it? The sport is going as many other courses and hopefully those meetings can relocate at a different course. But it's, it's disappointing to lose such a good course. Why is running a point-to-point harder now than it used to be? What are, what are the sort of financial realities of it? The main financial reality that has put a lot of stress on point-to-points is health and safety. We have to have a very high level of um, emergency services there, both for human and horse. Now, don't take me wrong, that is very important, and it happens every day under rules as well. But you're sat in a green field, and you have to have four by four ambulances, you have to have a lot of very highly qualified doctors, and then also we have to have horse ambulances and highly qualified vets. I'm not saying that the sport hasn't had that before, but they have certainly brought the levels up, and with that has come a greater cost to running a meeting. Alan, hunting now, as we understand it, trail hunting, is not what hunting was before the, the Hunting Act. So... Is it still robust enough as a pastime in order to provide the volunteer force and the financial underpinning to sustain point-to-pointing? Well, hunting fully backed point-to-pointing through COVID and a lot of hunts, not all hunts, but a lot of hunts kept their meetings going, knowing behind closed doors that they were going to struggle to make any profit at all, but wanted to make sure that the structure of the sport stayed there because point-to-pointing is not only there for horses to race, but also hunts use it as a great way of entertaining their country as a small thank you for the trail hunting that they do now. And also um, to, 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 to have a, a countryside social gathering for, for everybody. So it has put a lot of strain on them the last two years. I will say this year, having luckily myself been very fortunate, I attended 50, exactly 50 meetings that... At every meeting I went to, the crowds were were busting. There there were fantastic levels of support and enthusiasm and many other things going on, but but only the horse racing as well, I must say. But um, it it, it has put a lot of strain on them. And one or two hunts are thinking, can we really take the risk because of the amount of money they have to invest to run a day at a point-to-point? So is there a sustainable solution, do you think, Alan, that the whole industry can get behind? No, I don't think there is. I think the best solution at the moment probably is we've got is the enthusiasm of point-to-point people and hunting people to keep the sport going. That's probably the best solution. But um, it, it is shown that we are down on numbers of horses, but so is 
under rules slightly suffering at that as at times as well um and if we could find more horses i think it would help our fixture list tremendous tremendously bolster it but at the moment we are working very hard in every angle but to actually pinpoint one thing we could do no there isn't exactly exactly one straight answer all right, Alan Hill there, leading point-to-point trainer. Cornelius, if you are a fan, as I know you are and I am, of the uh, amateur branch of the, of the, of the steeplechasing game in, in the UK, uh, the closure of a pretty significant track is a, is a bit of a worry, really. I, I think it's, it's a huge uh, concern. Barbary Castle, uh, <laughs> as much as, uh, as uh, point-to-point racing has your grade one uh, tracks, you know, in the same way as you'd perceive uh, Newbury or, or Cheltenham or Ascot or York or, or wherever. It's it's that type of track. It's right up there. Uh, and uh, there is, there's been some terrific, it's a very good race course. It's adjacent to where Alan King and uh, others uh, train not too far away from, um, from Marlborough and Swindon in the south of England. But, you know, it, it's a big concern. I've, I've read this statement, uh, talks about highly challenging economic uh, environment that we're in. Uh, surging inflation up to 91.1% in Britain today uh, has also substantially raised costs. Um, these factors have resulted in a continuation of point-to-point racing at Barbary becoming no longer viable in the current climate and also lack of income during that period when they, the pandemic had, uh, had really hit. So uh, a number of quick points to make. Point-to-pointing, uh, people talk about amateur racing, but this is amateur in the old-fashioned sense of the word amateur. This is absolutely the gra- grassroots of steeplechasing. Once upon a time, when people race, they race from point to point, hence uh, the expression. So this is the absolute grassroots of it, where, from where it all emanated. It's still going. Uh, it's not thriving in the way that it was a few years ago. There have been less runners. Uh, there have been all sorts of challenges. We've got one less race course, another less race course here in Barbary Castle closing. But the, the thing to, to, to cling on to for the point-to-point authority is that however much you've lost a race course and there are less runners, people love it. People are pouring into these tracks in the countryside, uh, particularly from the period from sort of uh, end of March, beginning of April onwards when the, the weather tends to be a bit better. So the, the people want them. Uh, the actual sport itself is not thriving in quite the same way. And it's another example here, the, the news about Barbary Castle. Very, very sad news indeed. Uh, and, um, you know, there is a lot of work to be done by the point-to-point authority and some clever minds there to make certain this sport does survive because nothing is, nothing is guaranteed in that area. All right. Have you got a tip for me for today? I've got a tip. I thought, I thought I'd combine modern day action with history by taking you to Carlisle for the 255 and the Carlisle Bell, which um, the jockey club owners of Carlisle say, and I don't dispute this, it's the oldest sporting trophy in the world. The winners do get a bell. And uh, in in 2002, I was lucky enough to be involved in the winner, travelling band 20 years ago, drawn 17. And I remember Rob Wright, tipster on the Times newspaper, said, you have to be a group horse to win that. Well, we weren't a group horse, but we did win, ridden by a 19-year-old Liam Keneary, still going strongly now. And the tip for that race this afternoon, been raced for since 1599, is a horse of Carl Burke's, invincibly uh, number nine, fairly weighted, decent run at Windsor last time and drawn nine. Cornelius, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Wednesday, June the 22nd. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.